Hello and welcome back to another episode of Elrod's Educational Lectures. In this episode, we will be talking more about imperialism. Thank you. politically, economically with the European countries, almost bullying the Ottoman Empire in some cases. Maybe not the best word to use there, but definitely some, a degree of um, exploitation at the hands of the Europeans with the Ottomans. And the Ottomans can't really do a lot to stop it. They're not very powerful. They're in slow decline. They try to go through some reforms with the Tanzimat reforms, but it's very, very, very limited as far as what they're able to actually accomplish. And we see some attempts at industrialization, but it's, again, very limited there, too. And then the response with China is a little bit different than the fact that China tried to shut their ports down again. They tried to fight a couple of different times, a few different wars, and they really had a huge amount of resistance to anything Western and Western pressure and that kind of stuff. And they had a big humbling 1800s, I guess, as, as we kind of think of that, and struggled uh, with the West. Japan is kind of faced with that same dilemma because Japan has always had that isolationist mentality, closed the ports down, which created a whole different situation in Japan anyway. But now the dilemma is how do we respond to this pressure from the West? And they take a different approach, and that's maybe for a couple different reasons than what we see with China. Japan kind of has the luxury of seeing what's going on in China and saying, we don't really want to go down that road as well. They're kind of learning from China's mistakes possibly as far as resisting the West. It's not going to work out well. So Japan decides instead that we're just going to adopt Western ways. That way, when it comes time to resist, we'll be ready. And so that's really what the Meiji Restoration is about. The Meiji Restoration is restoring power to the emperor, and then they end up creating a centralized constitutional empire, constitutional monarchy type mentality, with this Meiji Restoration. Now, what are they restoring it from? What type of political system are they under in Japan coming into this? Feudalism, right? The shogun's in control. The daimyos have a huge amount of influence and say those kind of things. The Meiji Restoration is an end to feudalism in Japan. The Tokugawa clan is out. The power of the shoguns is crushed. The emperor has been restored power, along with 
the constitutional side that they're going to create. Because part of this Meiji restoration is, or as a result of this Meiji restoration, we're going to see westernization that starts to pick up. And that shows up politically in the form of a constitution. That's a western thing. We're not going to say republic, but a constitution. All right? So that's the Meiji restoration. Power back to the Meiji Emperor. We're not going to see a massive uh, Taiping rebellion type thing like what we see in China. This is pretty much a group of samurai that overthrow the Tokugawa clan. All right? So that's what we're going to start to see. How do we do this, though? One, we have to subjugate the nobility class. The daimyos, they have to find a role and a way to do this. Similar to what we saw in Russia. Remember, the Russians, the boyer class had always been so overwhelmingly influential. And the answer always had been give them more power. And they uh, served them as recently, I guess just very recently, ended at the time. And actually while this is going on, that's also while serfdom is still being ended in um, Russia at the same time. So these are kind of contemporary with each other. But um, they have to find a way to limit the power of that nobility class, the daimyos in Japan, the boyers in Russia. Both of them are pretty much done at the hand of the state. Right, and getting rid of all of the privileges that come with that nobility and the daimyo and samurai class and those things. A big social overhaul here, away from feudalism. And all of this autonomy that the daimyos are used to, done. It's all under centralized authority. So a big, powerful national government. And that national government organizes the collection of taxes. It all goes to the government, not to the pockets of the lords anymore. So we have a growing infrastructure, which is going to be huge when we're talking about the next step here. All right? Because what we're in order to westernize, what's the number one thing we have to do? It's great to create a constitution. It's great to do that kind of stuff. What's the West advantage? right now. Industrialization. So we have to do that. Now here's the trick. In the West, in France, in the United Kingdom, the United States, all these areas, it kind of happened naturally with some assistance from the government. But the government was already there, the resources were already there, the merchant classes were already there. It's not that way in Japan and it wasn't that way in Russia. Remember, these transitions had to be made by the state, by the government. Everything Western, everything industrial, everything modern comes from the state. If you're developing this new economy, the state has to develop it. If you're developing a new industrial world, the state has to create banks to do it, has to build railroads to do it, has to do all of these things that kind of just happened naturally in England over the course of a century. These guys are gonna do this in a decade decade and a half. Over the next couple of decades, they're rapidly trying to catch up. All of this done at the hands of the government. Now, how do you do that? Well, if we're trying to build a Western military, who do we need to get to come in and run the military? Westerners. They're going to bring in United States generals and people from all over the place to organize the 
military as it should be. Instead of a feudal order, they're going to create an industrial military with large, you know, organized, organized differently, I guess. And to learn about Western ways, they're going to bring in factory owners from uh, Great Britain and all of these different Westerners to help westernize and modernize Japan. All right, so we have the Constitution that's going to come here in about 15 years, which works hand in hand with the emperor. All right, it's still pretty much the emperor is the dominant force here. Yes. What made the European powers like start to work with them? Like, why would they just try to take them? Well, these are not necessarily the United States government that's sending these people over, in some cases. Or the British government that are sending businessmen over. They just hire them. These are capitalist societies, right? So if I'm an American general, I'm looking for work, I can get paid pretty decently to come over to Japan to teach. And we're in a free society, so they can stop us. Yeah. Now, the military is a little bit different. There was an alliance that was worked out with the United States there, so that they could have access to Japanese goods. But if I'm a British businessman, the government has no control over me whether I go or don't go. It's not saying that the British are sending them over there. The Japanese are inviting them and paying them top dollar to come do that. Does that make sense, the difference yeah. down there? So, yeah, it's not necessarily the British are encouraging this. It just has happened. No, I was wondering more about like the, the military. Yeah, so the military, they work out because what the Americans are hoping is they are going to have access to these trade agreements. And so we'll work with the, the new government here that's been restored, and we'll help you with your military so that you can create you know, a certain level of hegemony over East Asia and this dynamic. We want to be your exclusive trading partners, though. And it's a competition between a lot of these Western powers as far as, you know, can we, can we be the exclusive traders here? And Japan's kind of clever here because they're playing against each other. You know, well, if you want rights to trade with us, America, United States, what are you going to do for us? We'll help you train your military, that kind of stuff. The British are, you know, what are you offering? French, what are you offering? And it's, it's a smart role to play, clever role to play there. But um, ultimately, what it creates is an equal playing field for Japan. Because China did not respond that way. What was China's response? Close it down, shut it down, no more interaction. Well, that's not acceptable at all. Conflict brews out of that. This is working out more arrangements and deals and things like that more diplomatic there, okay? So the government is gonna lead this industrialization process. They're gonna sponsor the, the building of railroads, which is a necessity if you're gonna industrialize. Create a national bank for uh, lending and to help create you know, secure loans for large factories and all these kind of things. And the result is Japan becomes an industrial power. They're not outproducing the British by any means, and not even outproducing the United States by any means, but they become a player in the textile industry. They become a player in the iron and steel industry, and they become a massive player on the global scene, one of the industrial forces. And they have kind of a unique advantage that the Westerners don't. They are, have 
close proximity and easier access to you know, the biggest marketplace in the world still in China. And so they can trade, they're plugged into that trade a lot more than someone like the United States. All right, so we see factories popping up and we see a growing textile industry and several other things here. All right, and we've talked about all that stuff here. Now, along with this, we see a westernized society as well. Because if you think about what happened in England, we had to create a workforce, right? Well, there's a changing dynamic with the peasants in the countryside and those kind of things, right? In England, how did they change that dynamic with the peasants? They weren't trying to get industrialized here, but this created that workforce eventually. Do you remember what that movement was called? Right. So we had to change the dynamics in the rural areas on the countryside. The same thing is true here in Japan. They have um, different tax laws and different things that really drive peasants into the cities, create a new workforce, which Japan already had some of that because one thing that's different about Japan than Russia, Japan already had an emerging bourgeoisie class, they would have been called that in Japan, but they had a merchant class that had already started some of this dynamic. They had some cities and an urban area that was thriving economically with trade, commerce, all these kind of things. Something that Russia really didn't have. So this is not a complete overhaul of Japanese society, but we see an urbanization movement and a trend. And then we see a growing working class, which means we're gonna see a growing socialist presence anarchist presence, all the stuff that we see in the Western and the European nations, that's going to start popping up in Japan too. Because this working class is going to be exposed to the same type of issues, the same type of uh, problems, work conditions that any industrialized society is going to have. So that really starts showing up here in Japan as well. So we're going to see you know, unions and protests and all this that's going to follow as they go through this transition. And it's happening, it's happening a lot quicker than what we see in the West. Because again, this is trying to rapidly catch up. So this social change is taking place in 10 to 15 years, as opposed to 70, 80 years in the Western nations. Because these ideas are already out there. All right, so ultimately the result is we're gonna see Japan redefining its role in the world. And we're gonna see, this is really the first Asian country that is going to respond well, to industrialize and modernize. And that creates a level playing field. So when it comes to working out trade agreements and bargaining, they're gonna work out equal trading agreements. Something the Ottomans couldn't do with the Europeans. Something the Chinese couldn't do with the Europeans. The Japanese can because they're an imperial force of their own. When it comes to carving up China and the spheres of influence, well, one of these spheres of influence is gonna be Japanese. So they're an industrial force on their own. And when we get to the 20th century, you know, the 1920s and 1930s, Japan has pretty much taken over that whole area. So this is all starting here in the late 1800s. They become a huge military power and they use it and they have a big victory over China, which changes the dynamic of hegemony over the East Asian region with the Sino-Japanese War in the 1890s. 
the Russo-Japanese War in 1905. And so there's a lot of different things that happen here. So there are two competitors in East Asia, Russia to the north and China. They had victories over both of them. So Japan is becoming a pretty, I guess, a first-rate power here. So, that's really it with Japan. What I want us to do now, you're going to get with a partner, and we're going to discuss. I want you to, this is another example of an LEQ prompt right here. Compare. I want you to compare the industrial process in Japan with that of Russia in the 19th century. Okay? Get with a partner. Let's spend seven minutes discussing this, and then we'll draw up a comparison. Some of the events and some of the things there. We'll talk a little more about today. What I really want to talk about is the effect on the different regions uh, that Europe has interacted with. You know, we already talked about that on Japan and China and the Ottomans with the European interaction, those kind of things here. With most of the rest of the world, most of the rest of the world, the, um, the interaction is mainly imperialistic in nature. That the Europeans don't necessarily get into the Ottoman Empire and take it over, conquer it, and imperialize it. They don't really they don't do that at all in Japan. In China, we talked about the sphere of influence, we talked about that over today. But the rest of the world pretty much comes to, under direct European control. And that has huge effects in each of the different regions. You know, when you get into uh, culture and daily life and economies and all these things, there's different effects that come out of it. So we'll talk about the, uh, those today. And we'll talk about some of the events and some of those things that go through today. But let's start here with imperialism in Africa. There's a few things that happen here in Africa as far as opening up Africa, I guess, if you want to think of it that way. Now, that's kind of a, that's kind of a weird term or maybe even a misnomer because Africa's not being discovered here. Obviously, Africa's been involved in global trade for, century, uh, for centuries. Africa has even been under European control along the coast, at least, for centuries. You know, Unit 4 starts out with the Portuguese coming down and colonizing along the African coast, and the Dutch get some presence and that kind of stuff there. And so we really see, coming into the 1800s, Africa along the coast colonized. Um, in the 1800s, we'll see this Congo region come under Leopold and that kind of stuff. But all this other stuff is not really interacted with by the Europeans, if that's the word I use. It's not really um, under the control of the Europeans yet. The European interest has been purely coastal. Whereas in 15 years, it'll be all the way from coast to coast fully under European control, all right, except for Ethiopia and Liberia. Those are two areas that don't fall under European control. Ethiopia successfully defends itself, whereas Liberia works out diplomatic stuff. But either way, 
most of the rest of it's under control here, all right? So what we see happening here, though, some people that do this, some of the earliest interests in Africa come from people like David Livingstone and Henry Stanley, which are missionaries. There's actually missionary activity to go evangelize to all these different areas across Africa and do all these kind of things. And while they're doing this, you know, David Livingstone actually starts living down there with some of the local tribes and those things there. And they go looking for him. Henry Stanley goes looking for him. And while they're doing this, while they're searching and evangelizing that kind of stuff, they are writing letters back to Europe and reporting what they're seeing and those kind of stuff. And they're reporting huge amounts of gold and huge amounts of diamonds and rubber and all this stuff everywhere that is extremely valuable to the Europeans. And other business people, like Cecil Rhodes and other leaders like Leopold II, start having these dollar bill signs that flash over their heads and start saying, hey, there's a lot of wealth and opportunity down here in Africa that we might be missing out on if we just stick to the coast. And we can get further in from the coast now because we don't have to worry about malaria and those kind of things because we have cures for that now. So um, Africa is now opened up. Once it's opened up, we get to away from this into a land grab. All right, and the way that I think of it is it, it's people start going crazy over this land. Um, growing up, anybody play that game, Hungry Hungry Hippos? You know what I'm talking about there, where you kind of hit the button and you just grab as much marbles as you can? That's kind of what the scramble for Africa is like. You have the French over in this corner, the British over here, and everybody's just trying to grab as much land as they possibly can, as quick as they can, because you don't want to be left with the least amount of marbles when it's all said and done, right? And so that's what we see here. That works out as a good analogy because there's hippos in Africa, right? But um, what we see here is a massive land grab. And when these European countries get close to each other, like the French are gaining territory until they run to the British over here, well, how do they determine where that stops? Most of the time when you have armies and that kind of stuff and this close, and nations, they start fighting over this stuff. So tension starts picking up. There's things like the Fashoda incident here, where the French and the British both are claiming Sudan here, and the French end up backing down after a while. You have the Boer War down here between the British and the Dutch, the Moroccan crisis up here, where the Germans think they should control some of this, and they come and park half their navy off the Moroccan coast. And so there's a lot of near war events that are breaking out here, and a lot of hatred and tension and animosity that's starting to build up, which is going to be big as we get into World War I. We'll talk about that a little bit later. But we start to see all that. Now, in Asia, imperialism starts to look a little bit different. You know, in this area over here, this is the Ottomans, there's not really imperialism there. The Europeans have worked out a lot of trade agreements with the Ottomans that are not really fair. But if you look here, the British and the French in South and Southeast Asia, and then the Dutch down here, these are solid colors because those are direct colonies of a European nation. Meaning, they are administered, governed everything as part of the British Empire for India, Dutch Empire, Empire for uh, the Dutch East Indies here, and over here Vietnam and Laos and all this French Empire. These are direct colonies here. Siam is independent. 
they work out agreements again with the British and the French to keep them out as kind of a buffer state. And then, but we'll, we'll look at that in a little bit too. So this is independent. Now, these in China are, what do they call those? Lines, I guess, they're not solid. Because what was the approach in China? And explain the sphere of influence to me. What does that mean? Right, so across China, the Qing Dynasty are still ruling. The Qing Dynasty are technically autonomous from European control. But the interest that the Europeans have in China is these big, huge, valuable marketplaces and some resources as well. So they divide the Qing Empire into spheres of influence. Russia has this area, Japan over here, Germany, the British, the French, so that only those nations have trading rights in their sphere of influence, both ways, from the Chinese perspective and from the European perspective. All right, so that's the approach here, spheres of influence in China. Qing Dynasty still administers, so it's kind of in the middle there. Whereas in India, after the Sepoy Mutiny of 1857, we have India is directly under the control of the British Empire. The Sepoy Mutiny was the uh, end of the Mughal Empire. Remember the Mughals, right? The Mughals are in control. They, don't, they try to keep the British out. The big mutiny takes place. End of the Mughal Empire. British take over completely. And India becomes the cornerstone of the British Empire. They get huge amounts of cotton from here. Uh, all kinds of precious gems and diamonds and all that kind of stuff. Huge marketplaces to trade. This is a huge cornerstone, all right? So in Africa, we see all these near war conflicts or some big wars with the Boer War here, but um, that leads to a lot of tension. Now, as you go to different regions, we're gonna talk about some of the different impacts across the world from European involvement, all right? Uh, first, in the realm of education, we are gonna see, you know, whenever the Europeans go to places, they have these things they call kind of these civilizing missions. It's part of social Darwinism in some cases. You know, social Darwinism is becoming one of the big things behind imperialism. This idea that resources are limited, survival of the fittest when it comes time for somebody to survive, the, the fitter race should survive. Well, the other side of that is, instead of just dominating, killing, and taking over everything, the other side is, well, our civilization is better, so we should help spread that civilization to the others. And education is part of that. And so education is brought to a lot of these areas. And some of the locals start learning European languages, European education, all this kind of stuff, as a way to set themselves apart. There's a couple different things that could come of this. One, because when the Europeans come to these areas, one thing to remember, the Europeans are bringing an industrial society to non-industrial areas. Now, what that means is places in Africa, places in Southeast Asia, they're going to feel some of the effects of industrial societies. They're going to pick up wage-earning economies, and they're going to be put to work in mining operations, they're working on railroads, and all these 
you have the emergence of this working class and all the pains of urbanization, all the pains of an industrial society without the advantages and the wealth of industrialization. That's what imperialism is going to bring. So you're going to have the wage-earning economy, the wage-earning jobs that are popping up in these, in these imperial areas. So education is going to be adopted by some of them as a way to get out of some of those terrible jobs um, in most of these colonies. Now, in Leopold's case, when he goes to the Congo, he's just enslaving everybody. And we'll talk about that in just a little bit. But he just, the, the treat, there's no escaping the treatment of that. He's, this is the cruelest example of slavery that we will ever see in Leopold's colony. The, uh, if you don't meet your rubber quotas, if you don't meet your diamond quotas, it's, it's death or death of your family members. or It's bad. It's bad, bad stuff. But education is a way to get out some of the, maybe it's a railroad job or a mining job. Mining jobs are the biggest ones in most of these colonies. So they're trying to get as much equality as possible, but this will not happen. Most of the constitutions that are set up in these colonies and, and areas like this forbid any equality between, well, in Africa, South Africa, it says there shall be no equality between whites and blacks. It's written in their constitution. And that's all the way up until the late 1900s. All right, the apartheid movement is trying to get away from that. But that's systematic there. All right? And then we'll start to see a westernization in a lot of these areas. Some forced, some chosen. For example, if you look here, uh, the King of Siam, with some of the younger students here, these guys are all dressed in European attire. Well, this is a good contextual thing, because what do we know about Siam from our map? So they are choosing, kind of like what Japan has done, they are choosing not to resist and fight the Western incursion. They're going to adopt some of its ways, work out diplomatic relationships, so they're not under the boot of European imperialism. Just like China did. I'm sorry, just like Japan did. China went the opposite direction. They tried to fight, and they lost. All right? But you're seeing almost two, a dualistic society in some of these imperial areas. All right? So the education growing there. Now, with religion, the... Influx of Europeans into these new these areas is going to be different as far as spreading religion goes than what we saw the influx of Europeans into the New World in Unit Four. Remember, into the New World in Unit Four, all of these colonies become overwhelmingly, almost 100% Christian, Roman Catholic in the Spanish areas, because the old ways are completely destroyed. You see a destruction of the old society. Well, in these areas, when you're talking about Africa and Asia, these societies are much, they're very established. And these religions are very established. So you're not going to, you're going to see a varying response here. In Africa, you're going to see a pretty good bit of conversion to Christianity. Particularly in these areas you can see on the map that don't have a strong Muslim presence. Now, this used to here in West Africa, but they've already started a conversion process with their interaction with the Portuguese and the Spanish and those early on. 
up here, these guys have a very strong Muslim presence. And that's going to stay that way. Here we're going to see a big conversion to Christianity in the South. And this causes a lot of tension uh, in the 1900s. As we get to the 20th century, 1950s, 1960s, 1970s, areas like here, when Sudan is abandoned by the British, you're going to see the Muslim North and the Christian South that fight it out, and they're trying to absolutely wipe each other off the face of the earth. Genocide levels. And there's a lot of power struggle that goes into there, a religious and ethnic struggle that goes into that, and there's going to be tension that comes out of this. And so we'll see that moving forward here. But um, some of the areas, South Pacific and a lot of these others, really have large number of uh, converts to Christianity. Some of the others in India, right here, we're going to see more of a conversion back to Hinduism because the Muslim presence is eliminated with the Mughal Empire, and instead of converting to Christianity, we're going to see a new wave of Hinduism that comes through. Same is true, well, I guess in Indonesia, which is under the Dutch control, and they're probably the most religiously tolerant throughout history, we're going to see a large Muslim presence. The Southeast Asia has a conglomeration of a lot of different religions there. There's a Hindu presence, there's a Buddhist presence, and a Muslim presence. It's all still kind of there. But we're going to see definitely a revival of Hinduism across South Asia. Not that it ever disappeared, but there was always that tension between the Muslims and the Hindus there. But the Mughals are gone now, which doesn't mean that Muslims are gone, but that political dynamic is, not, is gone. There's still a lot of tension there, and that's going to show up here in the 1940s and 1950s as well. So we'll get to that. All right. Now, as far as cultural identity goes, race becomes a big issue here with imperialism. You are introducing, I guess, the dynamic changes. The Europeans, as they come conquer these territories, a lot of Europeans move into this area. In some cases, you have 20, 25% of the population that turns into a European population. And these are the ones that are ruling. These are the ones that are setting the laws and setting the everything. And so there's a different dynamic racially in these areas. And racism is a big thing. And they have to they actually start identifying in Africa each of the people. They have to, when they sign up for their stuff and when they register and that kind of stuff, they have to identify which tribe they're associated with. Well, that's becoming not as much of a deal in Africa um, with a new cultural identity, an African identity as far as what they're concerned there. Not really a nationalistic movement because this is not with a nation, but that applied to a racial movement, I guess. All right, so you have, it's kind of like what we call the Westerners, that includes France, Germany, Great Britain, all, all these people. Well, the Africans are kind of looped into that too. And uh, Edward Blyden talks about that a little bit and kind of says each of these different areas are going to have something different to contribute. And there's different races and different things, and they, they have different customs and different cultures, but they contribute uniquely to the global exchange of things. And he kind of starts to identify that, and he loops all the African culture together and European culture. But that's just examples of that. 
right? So, but one thing that we're going to see, and this is going to be big in the 20th century too, so we'll revisit this a little bit later. But if you look at this map of Africa, this is how, you know, I guess, the tribal ethnic breakdowns here. Look at this real quick. And then let's look at this map of the Europeans. What's different about that? Space down. It's the borders and boundaries are different, right? Um, if we're using Sudan as an example here, this is what the British say Sudan is. These are the Sudanese people. Well, what does that mean historically, culturally speaking? These are the Sudanese people. Looks a lot different, doesn't it? So when these boundaries and borders that the British and the French and the Germans have drawn, when those European powers leave, how do you determine who's ruling them? This group, this group, this group, this group, this group, this group, this group. Which group? And these tensions start really picking up again. And in Sudan, it becomes a lot worse because you have the Muslim and the religious differences too, the Muslim and Christian differences. And so that's why in the 1950s, 60s, 70s, in this era of decolonization, we're going to see a huge amount of fighting and genocides and those kind of things because of that tension. But that's moving forward a little bit, okay? But that starts here with this tribal identification and that kind of stuff here, all right? Now, um, economies, because this is probably the biggest thing that imperialism affects. We're going to see a redefining of each of these regions and their roles in the global exchange and the roles in the global economy. One of the big things is we see forced labor in a lot of these areas. Um, especially early in the imperialistic times. Uh, we've already talked about um, the Congo. We've mentioned Leopold II. He's kind of the standard of forced labor here, the most infamous of these guys, because the cruelty that goes on in the Congo is unparalleled around the world. And nobody really knows what he's doing yet. He when he gets into the Congo, he's one of the first of the Europeans to get in there and start this colonial thing. And he's, it's not even a Belgian colony. It's Leopold himself, who's the king of Belgium. But it's his own personal little colony. He takes, you know, he hires some of his soldiers and some of these stuff to go down there and enslave the population. And he puts them to work extracting rubber, getting uh, diamonds and this kind of stuff out. And he makes a ton of money doing this. And then when they start realizing what he's doing, they call to and the Berlin Conference is one of the ones that's called together to stop this stuff from going on. And they say, you can go down and take over, but you can't enslave. We're not here to enslave people. It's more exploit people, I guess. And so that becomes the mentality there. And they give the colony, take it away from Leopold, and they give it to Belgium which Leopold's the king of Belgium, but he's not able to do what he was doing before. All right, so there's all kinds of, you can see the punishments and stuff that they had. Not a good situation. All right, now that's the, that's the Congo, but there are examples of this in a lot of the different imperialistic areas. Now, one thing that we're seeing, even if it's not slavery, because that's really frowned upon at this time, but, 
we're going to start to see the introduction of wage-based economy and wage-labor economy. Now, what that means is one of the main reasons I'm going to these areas is maybe to set up a gold mine or something there. And I need workers. I can't enslave them. But I can pay them and pay them very, very little and get what I want out of it and go sell it for a lot of money somewhere else, all right? And that's one of the things that we're gonna see with this economy of coercion here. But in some of these agricultural areas, think about what the Europeans have just lost in the early half of the 1800s. Some valuable hacienda areas, valuable farming areas, valuable whatever, in the New World, uh, not New anymore, but in the Americas, that have year-round growing seasons that have tropical areas with huge amounts of fertile land for cultivation, we've lost all that. So how are we gonna supplement our sugar and our tobacco and our coffee industries when we don't have that anymore? Well, Latin America's gonna trade some of that stuff, but if I can go create a colony somewhere in Indonesia or in Southeast Asia, I'd much rather do that. And so that's what they start doing. And they start these things called these cultivation systems that are setting aside a certain amount of each of the land, particularly or strictly for commercial agricultural use. And when I say commercial agricultural use, we're fully talking about sugar, coffee, tobacco, the big cash crops. And then the other, you can grow staple goods, you know, rice um, or corn in some areas, all these things. So we need cash crops and then the staple crops. And whatever cash crops you grow, you have to sell to these government contractors for bottom dollars. So those are different examples there that we're gonna see. All right, um, in Burma, this is another example of that with uh, rice. They're gonna pretty much foster the rice economy as far as getting rid of some of the bans on trade and. Uh, exports there so that they can export it back and forth to uh, Great Britain and some of these others. Bring in some infrastructure that's going to make this more possible and as a result we're going to have huge population increase, huge rice uh, increasing, all this kind of stuff. So this happens in a lot of places. British on the Gold Coast over in West Africa really draw a lot of people over here with um, cash crops and growing of um, big cash goods there. Other examples. All right, now, um, with this introduction of a wage economy, people are looking for work. Because now you have to survive, whether I'm in Africa, whether I'm in India, whether I'm in Southeast Asia. Remember, the industrial society has been introduced. The European societies have been introduced. So I have to find a way if I'm a, uh, somebody living here in South Asia, if I'm in India in South Asia, I have to find a way to support myself in this new wage-based economy. I have to find a job, AKA. So, need money here. So I'm going to incorporate myself. We have the development of this working class and whatever job I can, whether it's in the mines, 
whether it is on a field and in some of those cultivated systems or whatever it might be, I have to find a way in to this wage-based economy. Right, and then we have these big projects all the time. The biggest construction projects are normally railroads because we want to be able to move things from point A to point B quicker if we're trying to extract stuff. Mining operations, all kinds of stuff there. All right? And these workers don't have very good situations at all. It's just like the working class early in England that we talked about. The only difference is we don't have socialism to help these guys. There's no social awareness, no anything there to help these guys. All right. So one thing that we're going to start to see those are some different examples of the conditions and all that kind of stuff. A lot of people concentrating into the cities because as families get introduced into this wage economy, we're going to start to see a lot of the men, uh, husbands, fathers, whatever, that are separated from their families because they have to move to find a job. And the women have a whole redefinition of what they're doing. Um, over this. Uh, have a whole redefinition of what they're doing as far as domestic jobs are concerned. Because they have to take over a lot of the farming, a lot of the tilling of the land, that kind of stuff. So they'll be living in the rural country areas, and the men will move into the urban areas to get jobs, and they oftentimes are separated for long periods of time because they're trying to adapt to this new wage-based economy. All right, so we see a lot more put on women there in these areas, all right? We'll get back to that in a second. All right, and along with this, urbanization. Part of the industrial scene, part of the industrial society. Not as much factories, there's maybe a couple here and there, but these are where the jobs are. So these cities start to get big. part of this introduction of the industrial society. But even these factories are really for the purpose of agricultural goods, not really for the big money producing goods. They don't want to hand industrialization over to the subjugated. All right, so we talked about the role that women play there. Now, as far as assessing this, so results of what's going on, pretty much we have um, integration of Asia and Africa economies into the global market. Now, this is not the first time they've done this. Obviously, these, are, these were the global market for so long, right? But this is a redefinition of what's going on. This is integrating them into the new industrial global market. And their role is provide the resources most of the time through this coercion, forced labor, and that kind of stuff. Now, we don't see industrialization breaking through, but we do see that social aspect come through. So we do see a, a limited amount of modernization. We see westernization in a lot of cases, but there's not really an economic advantage that comes from this industrialization like what Western Europe. They get the drawbacks, but not the benefits. All right, modernization as we talked about. Um, a lot of the constitutions and a lot of things that are gonna be written are gonna be adopted even after the Europeans are left. Education and schools are gonna become a big thing here. Bringing in European healthcare, these civilizing missions, I guess, there. 
So there are elements of modernization, just not really the big industrialization that's going to make them wealthy. Okay? All right, good. And that's it for imperialism and those kind of things.